The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. How exciting. Happy New Year to all. First time I get to preach in this decade. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for protecting us and keeping us and giving us grace and tuning in to study your word. And I pray for those that are not here with us today for various reasons. Some are sick, some can't make it. I ask that you be with them in spirit and heal them. And prepare our ears and our hearts to what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Again, Happy New Year to all. And I was preparing months ago as preaching, what would I be preaching in 2020? What books to study? And God laid it on my heart to start out with the Ten Commandments. For us to have a 2020 vision, we have to kind of go back to the basics a little bit. But as we study the Ten Commandments, you would see they're anything but basic. And the title for this series will be Ten Talks, but there'll be more than ten talks because today will serve as an introductory uh, sermon to the Ten Commandments, which I called Thunder on the Mountain. Question, can any of you here recite all Ten Commandments without looking them up? A few, not so many. All right, easier question. Which servant of God was the most flagrant, flagrant uh, lawbreaker in the Bible? Anybody? Moses, he broke all Ten Commandments all at once. Ah, dad joke, right? But I'm allowed because I'm a dad. And you know, most Christians will probably would admit the Ten Commandments are important, yet they're totally unknown. You know, a recent survey, there was a, uh, they surveyed 1,200 people aged 15 to 35, and most of those polled can only name two commandments, and they weren't very happy when they were told about the rest of them. And speaking widely of the Ten Commandments, I'm amazed about two things. One is the ignorance we have of them. And number two is our interest to know them more, to know more about them. And I think the interest for them is, is very clear as we see uh, almost all social trends that we have in the Western world, it's in deep decline. And we're confronted with crime, rising the crime and family breakdown, personal debt. We have drug abuse on the rise. And we live in a generation that's lost its fixed standards. And our society is not just a ship that's loose from its mornings. We lost our sail, our rudder, everything, and our compass, and we don't know where we're going. And, and, and a society that desperately adrift, the Ten Commandments, will serve both as a landmark and our anchorage. And I read, another reason I think why people are interested in the Ten Commandments today is because I truly believe that they are stamped, these ancient rules, on the conscience of every man and woman. And they are part of us as human beings. We hear them, we recognize them with our innermost beings. And I believe passionately today that our society needs the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, And the idea uh, that God has rules for us uh, may not sound, you know, for our life uncomfortable or even off-putting these days. But if God has spoken about them. If God instructed them, it makes a lot of sense for us to listen to them. And, you know, many people, I said it before, believe in God, but they don't believe God. 
They believe in the maker, but they don't want to accept the maker's instructions. And we need to understand that God himself is the source of the Ten Commandments. And because the basis of Ten Commandments is he's the one who made us, and these are instructions for us. And I believe it's about time we started taking them seriously. And today, those suggest we should modify the Ten Commandments for our society. They say Ten Commandments are obsolete, they're old-fashioned, out of date, and because of this age, you know, personal independence, a few really of us really want to be pushed around by some set of rules, right? So let's rename them to Ten Suggestions. Others think we should just get rid of them completely. Even Christians today separate, you know, they say they don't apply to us because we're under grace. And there is no longer need for them because they're outdated, because we no longer live under law, but we're under grace. And I'm going to tell you that we must separate law and grace as different ways of approaching God for acceptance. But we must understand God designed the law and grace to work together. He designed it to work together. The law drives us to Jesus through who we receive grace from God. And having received grace, we seek to follow God's law out of love for him. Though a Christian is not under the condemning power of the law, we are under his commanding power. And Jesus said in John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, keep my commandments. Well, all they had at that time was the Old Testament. What commandments is he talking about? You see, we make a lot of noise about the Ten Commandments, but God's voice is above all the noise that we're making about the Ten Commandments. Just because we're under grace does not mean we ignore God's law. But only grace may, through grace may we actually begin to experience victory in keeping God's laws. The Ten Commandments are not absolute. They're absolute. And we're not made, uh, they were not made for a particular part of history for the Old Testament. Uh, they were made for all seasons, all centuries, all cultures. And folks, no nation can survive without the Ten Commandments. If you think about it, not all laws, but most laws are based in this country or any country on the Ten Commandments. But the irony here is, you know, in this country in the last 20 years, I would say we've gotten rid of the Ten Commandments in this country. We're getting rid of them from the, from the state house, from the courthouse, from the schoolhouse, in the name of freedom, right? We get rid of it in the name of freedom. Yet the price we paid is our own freedom. We've pushed aside these old laws in order to have personal freedom. What's the result? Moral vacuum. We're no longer free to venture out at night, right? We're, we're no longer free to let our kids play on the streets like we used to when I first got to America. We put houses, we put a whole bunch of security on it, right? Everybody has pretty much has a ring camera on the doorstep. We have security at our churches. Can you imagine that? Somebody saying that at least 10 years ago. We need to have armed guards at churches. Laws do not restrict. In fact, law is the heart of liberty. Rather, they free us to live under harmony. It's true for societies, and it's true for all individuals. In my younger days, you know, when I was in a youth group, we had this catchphrase was popular, and I think it's still going around, WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? Anybody remember that? What would Jesus do? And as often happens with catchphrases, they're taken out of context or taken to the extreme, and you would add, what would Jesus eat? 
What would Jesus drive? And so forth. And to me, I was part of that, but then I realized the answer becomes open-ended, right? You can, you can fit whatever you want into what would Jesus do. A better question to ask is, what did, not what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? Not what he would do, but what did he do? What would he do? And this confines our answers to a safe, reliable source, the Bible. No speculations. We can see exactly what Jesus did. What did Jesus do when he confronted sinners? What did he do when he confronted sinners? He made, you see, when you study the scripture, you will see that Jesus made an issue of one's righteousness rather than happiness. In Matthew 5.20, he said this, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say anything about happiness. He's talking about righteousness. And he used the Ten Commandments to show sinners, and pay attention, this is the minimum standards. This is the minimum standards of righteousness standard of God for his people. And you'll see why I'm talking about why it's the minimum standard. Look with me in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 21. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. So, first of all, Jesus, he's not getting rid of the law. He's not getting rid of the Ten Commandments. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will not by no means pass from the law till it all is fulfilled. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them and shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds righteousness of scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he starts using the Ten Commandments. He says, you have heard it was said... To those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. Well, that's one of the commandments, right? I haven't murdered anybody. I'm good. But you see, in the New Testament, if you look at 1 John 3.15, so Jesus, and you read the New Testament, he ups the ante. It says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Well, that, that's different. When he says, don't murder, I'm not guilty. But when I read John 1 John 3.15, I'm guilty. I haven't murdered anybody, but that's not what he meant. And then in, he continues in Matthew 5.27, he says, You have heard it was said to those of the old, you shall not commit adultery. Well, that's the minimum standard. I haven't committed adultery. But he goes on and says in verse 30, uh, 28, says, But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman or lust or has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, this applies to women as well. That, we're guilty, aren't we? Snap, right? So those are the minimum standards. So it's not what would Jesus do, but what did he do with the Ten Commandments? And that's what we're going to try to do. So why did Jesus use these Ten Commandments? Jesus is all about that grace, right? Why did he use the Ten Commandments? You know, I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he explained it this way. A gospel which is merely says, come to Jesus, 
and offers him as a friend and offers marvelous life without convincing of sin is not the New Testament evangelism. The essence of evangelism is to start by preaching the law, and it's because the law has not been preached that we have so much superficial evangelism. True evangelism must always start by preaching the law. You know, when you, somebody reads that these days, they say, he's crazy. What planet is he from? Why are we preaching the law and evangelism? But he continues and says, when you use the law to show lost sinners their true state, be prepared for them to thank you. For the first time in their lives, they will see that Christian message is expressing love and concern for their eternal welfare rather than merely a better lifestyle while they're on this earth. They will begin to understand why they should be concerned about their eternal salvation. The law shows them that they are already condemned by God. Well, we shouldn't, we shouldn't condemn people, right? Well, we're not. You see, in John 3, 18, he makes it very clear. It says, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. He's already condemned. You're just telling them their true state because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the law does is show us the true state. And, you know, I have a dark walnut table in my study at home. And my wife will tell you I'm a clean freak. But I clean it off and so forth, you know, try to keep it nice and tidy. But then the next morning you walk in, and, there, and I don't know if you have dark furniture or something in your house. That morning sunlight shines on, right? What do you see? You see dust. Well, I cleaned it. The sun didn't put it there. All the sun did was expose it. That's what the law does. And when we take time to draw back the high and heavy curtains of holy of holies and let the light of God light shine upon our sinner's heart, it merely shows us our true state. In Proverbs 6.23 says, For the commandment is the lamp and the law of light. And today, many churches are filled with people who don't live up or measure up to what they confess. Because modern gospel, modern gospel generated the means of happiness rather than righteousness. We're talking about happiness all night. Not, and folks, let me explain something to you. And I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher, but let me tell you. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be successful. God wants you to have a perfect family. But you study the scripture, and you'll see there's two words that follow every one of those things. It says, in him. In him. He wants you to be happy in him. He wants you to be rich in him. He wants you to be successful in him. Romans 11.36 says, for of, for of him and through him and to him all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Who is him? Him is the holy, holy God Almighty. Holy, holy God Almighty. That's who he is. And perhaps one of the greatest errors today is that preachers think that sinners know they're sinful. That, you know, and they don't, therefore don't need to be confronted with this fact. They say they're unsaved and they just need to realize that God loves them and they can, can forgive them. Folks, that's just biblically and experimentally wrong. Let me tell you, I am a good person. I grew up in a Christian home. What did I ever do to offend God? Right? I'm a good person. I never killed anybody. I never murdered anybody. 
But Proverbs 20 says this, Proverbs 26, most men will proclaim each his own goodness. But who can find a faithful man? And Proverbs 6, 2 says, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Take Apostle Paul, right? We, we, we've been talking about Paul in Philippians and so forth, and great apostle. Do we think Apostle Paul was a good guy? Right? Righteous man. Pretty much wrote half the Bible. But what, look what he says about himself in Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then is the law sin? Again, what law is he talking about? He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's, he studied the law. He preached the law. And he says, certainly not. On the contrary, I will not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. He said that, that he had no idea what sin was until the law gave him that understanding of his true state. And, and the law is not bad. When we study it, you need to understand it. it's not a negative thing. Paul is writing to Timothy and says in 1 Timothy 1.8, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So we have to use it lawfully. And I want to tell you in this series, even though it will be exposition of law, it will, will be also exposing grace. We'll see how grace and law work together and how God accepts us through grace so we can live up to the law because we're under a different principle these days. And in preparation for this series, you know, I was wondering why the Ten Commandments? God already had the relationship with Israel, right? He led them out of Egypt. So it's not a relationship factor. He's already leading them out. Why, why, why does he have nothing better to do than add rules to these people and to us? What was God up to in that Mount Sinai? You know, what, what was he doing on that mountain? And we often think of the Ten Commandments. We, we also think of Moses or Charlton Heston going up the, the mountain, and he's getting the Ten Commandments, and he's coming down. That's not what really happened. This is partly true, but that's not a whole story. There was a whole preparation for the Ten Commandments. And I will ask that you read on your own uh, Exodus chapter 19 this week sometime, but we'll read a few verses from there today. But read it, it'll show you the preparation. You'll see that Moses went down, up and down several times, and, and then in, verses, uh, in chapter 19 there's a dramatic, incredible passage where Mount Sinai is filled with smoke, fire flashes, lightning and thunder. And God is the one who's speaking to Moses. And, you know, we read how God then reaffirmed them as the chosen people and told them to prepare themselves. They had to prepare themselves because on that third day, God would descend upon that mountain and speak with them. <clears throat> and during the time of preparation, leading, he, you will see that he asked them to wash their clothes and clean themselves up. Can you imagine being in a desert and God's telling you, go take a shower? Like, for real, you've got dirt all around. And he said, you set up a border around this mountain, don't come near it, and we'll talk about those things. And anyone that touched or violated those things was to put to death. Why? So read chapter 19. For time being, we're not going to read that, but we'll read a few things. So why were the Ten Commandments given? I'll start out leaving, reading to you by Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul... The testimony of the Lord, Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
The statues of the Lord are right, rejoice in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightenment the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, ye that much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, the honey home. Moreover, by them your servant is warmed, and keeping them there is a great reward. Keeping them is a great reward. So the law teaches us the beauty, perfection, sweetness, holiness of God's character. And if you want to know what God's like, you can look to the Ten Commandments. So this brings me to my first point. The first point is to, why did he give them? To reveal God's holiness. To reveal God's holiness. The single most important thing that we need to have is an awakening to the transcendent majesty and holiness of God. I think that's the most fundamental attribute of God and least preached about today. It's the holiness. Holiness stands at the very center and the very core of, of being God. In other ways, his other attributes don't stand out. It's holiness. There's, there's, there's only one attribute that's elevated to the third degree in the Bible. Holy, holy, holy God Almighty. Why? You know, this means holy means he is separate from his creation. He's separate from anything, separate from us. He's different. He's above us all. And that means God is beyond limits, transcendent. Transcendent space transcends the universe. He's the God that goes beyond. God is transcendent and holy. And you see, if you read chapter 19, first of all, uh, the way God distanced himself from the people. God says, what he speaks on, uh, to Moses, set a boundary around the mountain. In Exodus 19, 12, 13, uh, you, you read these words. You shall set a bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whenever man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. No beast, no person, no animal touch the mountain. And if they do, I can't even touch them. We got to kill them with a stone or shoot them with the arrow. No person even touched the person that touched the mountain. And what God is saying, there's that physical distance, if you please, between the people and the mountain is a symbolic moral distance that, moral distance that exists between God and us. And so God, in a way, is saying he is removed from the people. that They must keep it distant because if not, they will die. No man can see God and live. He made an exception for uh, Moses and, and, and Aaron, but he shielded them from the, whole, from the entire holiness and wrath of God. I think there's another way to his holiness is seen not only as a distance, but also Lord's, you got to think about Lord descending on the mountain. The scripture says they were on top of the mountain. And if you read chapter 19... Moses is going up and down, up and down. It's like, God, wouldn't it be easier if you just come down to where they are? Why Moses got to go up the mountain all the time? You know, Exodus 20 says, Then the Lord came down Mount Sinai on, the t- on top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. Moses went up. So there was not only a horizontal distance, there's also a vertical distance between us and God. And God says, I am holy, I am separate, I am different, I'm removed, I'm transcendent. And when you look at the Old Testament, you will see holiness of God almost on every page. 
There are passages on the Old Testament, you know, and I had some people, non-believers, they started, their, they were interested in the gospel, and they started reading the, the Old Testament, and they said, God was harsh. Your God is harsh. They're reading the Old Testament because they don't understand the holiness of God. And there's some people think that the God of the Old Testament is a different God of the New Testament. God in the Old Testament was a meanie, right? In the New Testament, he's all loving and all forgiving, kind, and will never bother sending anybody to hell. Let me assure you, folks, that the Old Testament God is the God of Jesus Christ, and our God is the God of the Old Testament. We read stories, for example, such as in Leviticus chapter 10, verse first two verses. It's a story of Nadab and Abihu, and I thought Corneille was a weird name, right? The text says they went in, they were sons of Aaron. Aaron was the head of priesthood. And the scripture says they went into the temple and offered a profane, strange fire to the Lord. We don't know what the strange fire or profane was, you know, we can guess. But look at these first two verses. They offered it, the sons of Aaron each took his censer and put the fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire to the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. God just consumed them. Just like that. Bam, they're dead. Aaron was angry. God wiped out his sons. No trial, no opportunity to defend themselves. Maybe they were just experiencing with worship or, you know, trying new things. But God said, you're dead. And in Chronicles uh, chapter 13, First Chronicles chapter 13, we find this story. I'm sure you guys are all familiar with it. It's about Uzzah. First Chronicles is 13 verses, uh, verses 9 through 10. It says, when they came out of Shadon's dressing floor, Uzzah put his hand to hold the ark for oxen have stumbled. So he was in charge of transporting the ark, ark of the covenant. Road is bad. It's about to tip over. He put his hand on it to hold it up so it wouldn't fall to the floor. For us, we would say that's not a bad thing. But look at verse 10. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him because he put his hand on the ark, and he died there before God. The oxen stumbled. He just was reacting on his instincts, right? And God struck him dead. And we read that story and we find out that uh, David was angry. And we may say, that's not fair. He didn't understand maybe the offense would be so great. And, but I want you to know, these people did not die innocently. Because God said to Aaron and his sons, you need to worship me in a certain way. You need to present this fire in a certain way. When they were transporting the ark, he said, don't touch it with the human hands. There was only several people that were allowed to transport the ark and touch it. And God says, if I tell you don't touch something, it means don't touch something. It would be better if it fall to the ground. It would be less polluted than if you touch it with your hand. So when God says no, he meant no. And you read the Bible in the Old Testament, you will find that dozens, dozens of crimes where people were stoned to death were killed, executed in the Old Testament. Some of these crimes include cursing your parents. You curse your parents. You're dead. Murder, kidnapping, child sacrifice. Do we have child sacrifice today? Planned Parenthood. 
We, we think these things are different in the old days, but the same sins. Unlawful divorce, adultery, homosexuality, incest. For all these, when someone does this, the Bible says, kill him, stone him. Well, has God changed? Has God changed? If we were to apply this today, that would be great population control, right? Half the, maybe all movie directors, television executives wouldn't be alive. I'm sure God has a different opinion about those things today, right? Absolutely not. If you miss anything that I hear say to this morning, God has not changed his mind regarding one single aspect of these, thing, of these sins, not one. He feels just as deeply about every one of them. And it's absolutely unthinkable for us to say those things or preach about those things for on a God who says, I do not change. He just decided in this age it's, it's okay. We're not quite as bad as the people of the Old Testament. People are getting by, and we see that. People are getting by. But what we need to have to have our understanding, in these days we have a privilege of being shielded by the Lord Jesus Christ. Being shielded by the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter 2.9, Peter writes this, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of the judgment. And Living Translation says, you know, the, the wicked are under punishment until the day of final judgment. And so what God says, that his holiness, which is part of his justice, it will be meted out for every one of these sins, but he will take care of it personally at death. The soul that sins shall die, and all of us will die here because we're all guilty. But God says, for unbelievers are concerned, he will judge them personally and take care of it, their retribution and death. And folks, it will not happen in this lifetime. It may, but it might not. But it will be meted out with such exactness. So, it, you know, the, the, the punishment will fit the crime so well that the adulterer would, would, would want to be, or it will be such exactness that he wished he would have committed that sin one last time because some punishment would have been less. A liar would have wished he lied one less time because the punishment will be meted out very, very strictly. And the judgment of God will be so exact, so right, so specially tuned to the crime that they will wish they had done less, just a fraction. And hear me when I say he is not more tolerant today than he was in the Old Testament. One of the things that God wants us to say by giving us this law is having this thunder on the mountain, Sinai, say, I am transcendent, I am holy, people are defiled, stay away, don't touch the mountain. If somebody touches it, don't touch him, but kill him, stone him, or kill him with the arrow. So the Ten Commandments show us the holiness of God. And you see, most people today have little understanding of God's holiness, and I don't think any preacher can explain to you the full picture of his holiness. But because we have little understanding of God's holiness, we have little understanding of our own sinfulness. And that brings me to the second reason why the Ten Commandments were given. Reveal the sinfulness of man. Nothing is more contracts than sinfulness sinfulness of man once you get a glimpse of the holiness of God. 
When you see the holiness of God, you read the Old Testament, and again, it's filled with people just doing, uh, really breaking God's laws and inability, inability their inability to meet God's minimum standard. And I realize, of course, some of us are, uh, can meet Ten Commandments at least minimally. Right? We can do no murder. We can keep the Sabbath, Sabbath day holy. But in the, in the New Testament, God begins to elevate and to show that actually the standard of God has to do with intents of the heart. Once you understand the law, you understand that God will be interested more in the human heart. An honest person who understands himself or herself, he knows that he cannot keep the law. Law was given to reveal sin. Why? So we can cry up to God for mercy. Total inability. And in Exodus 19.8, it says, then, then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Unbelievable. <laughs> he, he tells them what to do. Oh, well, whatever God told us, we're going to do it all. That's a remarkable story. You know, we were familiar with the remarkable story in, in Mark and all the apostles about the, uh, about the rich young ruler. He said, what should I do? To inherit eternal life. Do you guys know that story? And you, the, the reason I say it's, it's, it's kind of remarkable because when you read it, you think the two most perfect human beings are having a discussion. One is a perfect sacrifice lamb of God, Jesus. And, and then the, the rich ruler, he said, I kept all these commandments. So Jesus plays with them, right? And he has one minor flaw. And what he needed to do was get a glimpse of God's holiness. I mean, if see if he seen and understood the holiness of God, what do you think would have happened? He would have fell to his ground and repented, dust and ashes. The nerves to say, "Oh, I I kept all the things for my." It's like me saying, "I'm a good person. What did I ever do to offend God?" Shallow view of sin these days. That's the problem. Do you know what happens when people see God in His holiness? We begin to see ourselves, who we really are, and it's not a pretty picture. It's not. You know, we, we tend to rank sin, but this sin is bigger than this sin, and, uh, you know, it, it, other sins are minor sins. Um, there's no such thing as minor sins. They're all sins. And, you know, I have a friend, and I'll, <laughs> for this story, I'll use his name as L.A. Johnny. L.A. Johnny didn't pay his parking tickets for a while. And I said, why haven't you paid your parking tickets? He was telling me a story. And L.A. Johnny is a pretty well-off gentleman. Not like he's short on cash. He answered, well, they, were just, they were just parking tickets. But one day at 4 a.m., a bus came. And he was arrested, taken down to courthouse. And he stood in front of a judge... And he told the judge, Judge, I have all the money. I have the $700 I need to pay for, for the parking tickets, and I'll cover all the court costs. Minor sins, right? But here's what the judge said. He said, you should have paid him when you had the chance. Now, there's another penalty on top of that. You're going to jail. L.A. Johnny went to jail for parking tickets. They were just parking tickets. You see, the big mistake we make is we trivialize, minimize our crimes, just parking tickets, and we deceive ourselves. Well, these are just small sins. 
if he knew the punishment before the judge said it, I'm pretty sure L.A. Johnny would have paid his tickets right on time, right? Because he spent a whole lot of money and a whole lot of time clearing and expunging his record because he is a man of reputation. If you don't believe it, you know, there's an evangelist, Ray Comfort, I don't know if you guys heard of him. But the reason I mention him is because you can use a lot of YouTube videos to view him, and you can see how people trivialize or minimize sin. He will ask questions, are you think you're a good person? <laughs> yes, I'm a good person. Have you ever lied? Well, yeah, but they're just white lies. Have you ever stole anything? Well, when I was a kid, you know, but it wasn't really anything of value. Just little things in the past. You see what happens? We're trivialized. We, we minimize it like you're L.A. Johnny, but the Bible says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us in 1 John 1.8. The truth is, if you lied once in your life, you're a liar. If you've stolen anything, regardless of its value, you're a thief. And here is the ruling for all liars and thieves. Revelations 21.8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall be, have part in the lake which burns with fire brimstones, which is second death. All liars go to hell. Who's the father of all liars? The devil himself. Without that understanding, people continue in the deception. And the reason these things can be in the Christian's lives and because we justify, right, we excuse it because why? We have not seen God the way we should have seen God. He's more righteous than any of us. And, and you know, take, for example, I use Isaiah all the time. Because Isaiah was a great prophet. He was God's man. He was doing God's work, preaching, doing all kinds of things. More righteous than any of us here in this auditorium. And look, in Isaiah 6.3 it says, one cried out to another, said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So, so Isaiah is looking around and he said, Awesome. God is so holy, right? Look at all this one. No, that's not what he says. It takes a second, but then he says in verse 5, So I said, he's seen this incredible view and holiness of God. He says, Woe is me, for I am done because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Why is Isaiah with unclean lips? God's man. He's a prophet. For my eyes have seen the King. My eyes have seen the King. Do you remember the story of Job? Everybody knows Job, right? Job 1.1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. Awesome. Look what God says about him in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on earth, blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Good Christian. Good Christian. I mean, that's what the Lord says about you. And popular preaching today just gloss over the issue of sin because they don't want to offend anybody. They don't want to make feel anybody guilty. And, and folks, I'm not into hellfire preaching, but you got to tell people the truth. 
And, you know, they refuse to talk about, and it's about hell, and that's not understanding the law, hearing, not hearing God judge final ruling. When you hear the final ruling for your crime, you would want to get right with God, don't you? If he says this will happen, you would want to get right with God. And so Job is this awesome Christian. But then what happens later in the story in Job 42, 6? Five and six, it says, I have heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I have poured myself and repent in dust and ashes. Well, wait a minute. Won't you blame us, upright man who fears God? My eyes have seen the Lord. My eyes have seen God. And when you see the holiness of God, then you see yourself. And folks, when you really... Compare yourself in the holiness of God, you'll be looking to a pit of hell. And, and the purpose of the law, that we might see ourselves, our sinfulness, and cast ourselves upon the mercy of God, and finally see what we are like in His presence. So the first reason, holiness of God. Second reason, sinfulness of man. Now, he's talking about God's holiness and sinfulness here, and there's a great gap that exists. So we got holy God, and we got sinful man. No matter what we do, there's a gap. There's a gap. So what happens? Well, it's a good question. And if you read Job in verses nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 2, it says, Truly, I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? I'm standing in this gap. How can I be righteous before God? And then it continues in Job 4.17, also another question similar. It's all Job's friends asking these questions. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? And then in Job 25, it says this, How then can a man be righteous before God, or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? If the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is a maggot a son of man who is a worm. So you see, the Ten Commandments act like a mirror. Ten Commandments reveal the sinfulness of man. What does the mirror have a power to do? The mirror has the power to show you dirty. Has it, does it have the power to clean you up? No. I didn't get up like this. My hair was messed up, googers in my eye when I looked in the mirror. But the mirror didn't clean me up. So the third purpose, and it brings me to my third and final point, is to reveal the need for grace. So grace comes in because grace comes along and says, there is a way to God. There is a bridge that can be capped. And God will still keep his holiness and his transcendent and his majesty. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. There's a great contrast between Mount Sinai and Zion. And Zion in this passage is referring to uh, Israel. And it says, For you have not come to the mountain that, that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest. And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so those who hear it beg that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. 
And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned and shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. So that's, that's Mount Sinai. That's, that's the Ten Commandments. But then he continues in verse 22, says, But you have come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to the God judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Do you see the contrast between Thunder on the mountain, Mount Sinai, we have light, a welcome, reception, congregation with the saints, a knowledge that we can come into God's presence without fear of being struck dead, knowing that we have been accepted and received on the basis of grace. So the contrast, that's what the, book, uh, the author of Hebrews wants us to understand. And the Bible tells us whoever believes that the salvation is by doing some law of works, then you will be judged by the law and all of its penalties. And in Romans 8.3, it says this, For what the law could not do in that was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son. The law couldn't gap the bridge. That's why the Ten Commandments were given, to help us see that. And in Galatians 3.24 says, Therefore the law was our tutor to do what? To bring us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. So the, all the law can do is just chase a man to Calvary. That's all it can do. So we need to understand why salvation is of the Lord. In Romans 10.4 says this, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And the reason is God cannot accept any works that human being does in his his white light of holiness. And our works in the light of God's holiness is all polluted. No matter what they are, they're all polluted. And we're not saved by obeying the law, but trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. And only what the Lord Jesus Christ alone has done, that is the only acceptable to a holy God. And if we flee, if we don't flee to him, as we read, we'll be damned forever. And Hebrews 10.31 says it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. So, folks, if you don't know Lord Jesus as your personal Savior, you should be trembling in your seat. You may lift it, lift it up now, and, and again, when we study James, we see sin, 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 sin is fun for a season. But sooner or later, that season will be over. And one of these days, we're going to be gone forever. Some people go to heaven, some people go, go to hell. And no one will be excluded from the awesome holiness, the fire of God. You're going to bear it on your soul forever. That's the law, I assure you of that. But there's another covenant. Covenant of grace. It's standing where the fire of God, the judgment of God has already fallen. It's already fallen. That's the difference. And the Bible, if you have your Bible still open, look at Hebrews 12, verse 25. It says this, you have to understand our accountability. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth. That's Mount Sinai, when God spoke on earth. They didn't escape his wrath. They stoned and killed people if they touched the mountain. 
much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. The accountability of those people is smaller than comparison to the accountability of the people today. Did you know that? That's why we, we say, oh, the Ten Commandments don't apply. You know, I never committed adultery. But then we read, did you look at somebody lustfully? You committed adultery. Have you ever hated your brother? You're a murderer. We have fresh revelation of Jesus Christ. We know more about God and more about his salvation today because the Lord Jesus Christ came from heaven to save us. And that accountability on this generation, your accountability, my accountability, is much greater. So what will you do with the one who qualified, the only one who qualified to shield you from the holy justice of God? You know, many people come and hear sermons over and over, but yet they do not accept them. Who's going to shield you? Are you going to stand on your own accord in front of God? My friend, there's only one way to heaven, that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will see again, as I said, as we study the Ten Commandments, you will see law and grace working together. So that's my kind of an introduction leading into it. To There's more things, but I know I'm over time, but I had more to say. But <laughs> three things. God's holiness our sinfulness, and the need for grace. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it's absolutely terrifying in me to think there are people in this world who have heard the gospel a hundred times and still said no. And Father, I pray that they might not refuse him and speak the known terror that of your holiness. When we stand in front of you, we wouldn't be able to say anything. And, and right now is the day of salvation. I pray for all those in our families, friends, relatives, that they come and know you as their personal Savior and say, I receive Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior. Make him flee to Jesus Christ for mercy and grace. And Father, I also pray for this nation. There's lots of things that are going on. We've forgotten God. And I pray for, for our nation leaders. Give them all wisdom and let your will be done, Father. And not just our na nation's leader, but our local leaders. And Father, help our church be the light around us to those around us and this community. And as we leave this place, Father, I ask that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.